This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peace Street Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 and 2. We are beginning a series of studies in 1 Peter. Plan to be in it for at least uh, probably winter and spring. This morning looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, it's page 1014 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the Word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the knowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures which are able to make us wise for salvation. Father, leading us into a knowledge of Christ and leading us to growth and the grace and knowledge of Christ. And Father, we pray as we take up the study of this book this year, as we take up study of this passage this morning, that your Holy Spirit would lead us, give us light, and Father, help us to grow in our knowledge of your Word, to grow in our knowledge of you through the study of your Word. And Father, we pray that you would give us your Spirit in full measure, because we know the truths of your Word are spiritually discerned. And so, Father, we thank you for this text and ask that you would use it in our lives as we study it now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I suspect that some of you, if not many of you, uh, recently have done what I did this past week. No, I'm not talking about eating too much and gaining weight. I'm talking rather about living out of a suitcase. Living out of a suitcase means you are traveling. It means you are away from home. I can remember growing up, merely the appearance of suitcases would send our dogs into an anxious uh, neurosis. They would immediately detect something was afoot, and it probably would mean them being displaced for a little while, and they'd get very nervous. Suitcases mean travel. It means being on the road. Suitcases mean being away from home. Sometimes that's a happy thing. We enjoy traveling to see family, to see friends. We may enjoy traveling to go to a fun place on vacation. Sometimes uh, the suitcases coming out can mean a hard thing. We may be traveling uh, in the case of the death of a loved one, for instance. And sometimes it just means it's part of life. Those of you who are frequently on the road with your work, the suitcase just means business as usual. But in any of those cases, the suitcase means being away from home. 
Well, as Christians, we are a people who should live out of suitcases. Sometimes we do that literally, but as Christians, figuratively, we are a people who live out of suitcases. And of course, what I mean is that as Christians, we're not home. We are on a pilgrimage. We are traveling. We are heading toward our home. We are heading toward our destination, but we are on the road as Christians, heading toward eventually reaching in Christ our heavenly home. Well, Peter wrote this letter to Christians living out of suitcases. Uh, in some cases, somewhat literally, as he refers to them being in all kinds of different places, uh, and certainly, like us, figuratively, living as Christian pilgrims here in the world. And Peter had some important things to write to them uh, that he writes to us as this letter has been preserved by the Spirit, included in the Scriptures as it edified and encouraged them, so it is meant to edify and encourage us. And what Peter wanted them to know, what he wants us to know, is that we are to live Christian life out of the hope that we have in Christ for this life and for the life to come. Hope in Christ in this life and in the life to come. Hope is an important word in First Peter. It's a book of uh, chapter, six chapters, and it has, or five chapters rather, and it has five occurrences of references to our hope, to hoping. And so the book is about hope, hope living in this world, hope living in uh, the difficulties of life, as many of these Christians were experiencing. Hope uh, living in being persecuted severely, mildly, for the sake of Christ. And so as we look at this book, we're going to be talking a good deal about hope. Hope for this life, hope for the life to come. So that's Peter's focus. But today, he's talking about who we are as a pilgrim people. Who we are as travelers living out of suitcases in this world. Now, as is often the case with these letters that we have in the Scripture, they begin, they uh, start out with a rather, rather customary form, identifying the author of the letter, identifying the recipients of the letter, and then usually a word of greeting. And Peter follows that standard uh, format. And so as we look at these first couple of verses, we want to do so under that, that structure, who it was who wrote it, who he's writing to, and then his word of greeting. Uh, sometimes we think, well, why would you study the greeting of a letter? Well, a lot of times in our letters, there's not a whole lot there to, uh, to think about, but in the beginnings of these biblical letters, there's often a great deal of content in them, as there is in the case here. So first of all, let's look at who the author of this letter is. He's identified right up front. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked a good deal about Peter recently uh, in our study of Matthew. Uh, Peter, obviously, uh, one of the apostles, one of the disciples there in Matthew. However, we've made quite a jump as we move from Peter as we see him in Matthew to Peter as we meet him as the author of this letter. A lot has changed, and changed for the better. Uh, as we've studied Peter in Matthew, Peter often... Uh, got it wrong uh, from his objections to Christ's prophecies of his own death and not seeming to hear his prophecies of his resurrection to Peter's uh, denial uh, of Jesus uh, there 
after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, to the Peter that we have now, who's actually writing letters, they're included as, as Scripture. What has happened? Well, a great deal has happened. The resurrection has happened. Uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost has happened. Uh, Peter's own growth in grace, growth in his understanding, the Lord's using him as he did there in Acts chapter 2, the boldness that is suddenly evident in this once timid and fearful disciple of Jesus is, is evident. So, yes, this is the same Peter who followed Jesus there in Matthew and kind of seemed to stumble along, and yet this is a very different man, different because he understands the resurrection, different because he's been filled with the power and the knowledge and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, Different because, like all of us, he's known Jesus longer and grown in grace in his walk with the Lord. And different here because he's older and had more in the way of life experience. So, yes, that same Peter, but in many important ways, a very different, uh, more knowledgeable, more mature man. Now, at this point, probably the early to mid-60s, a seasoned tried, tested, effective follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, he's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He went from disciple to apostle. Uh, the, the word has the idea of being sent, but of course here it's used, Peter uses it in a much narrower, more technical sense of uh, one who has specifically been commissioned by Jesus as, humanly speaking, foundation of the early church. You'll recall with uh, the betrayal that uh, of the Lord Jesus on the part of Judas Iscariot and his subsequent suicide that the disciples early in Acts talk about needing to find a replacement for him. And one of the qualifications that they looked for was someone who had known Jesus from the beginning and witnessed his ministry, testified to his resurrection And that's what they look for. And so with Peter as an apostle in this sense, it's a very specific office, uh, a unique position, really, uh, being uh, part of the human foundation of the New Covenant Church, the New Testament Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We do have people who are sent out today, uh, apostles in that uh, small case sense. I remember church on the seminary I attended, it said, you know, the pastor's name out front, it said such and such, such and such, apostle. Well, well, I was kind of smiled at that. Uh, There is an informal sense in which missionaries or others, even all Christians, are sent into the world in in that sense. But Peter is an apostle in this narrower sense, a unique office Uh, given the power of the Holy Spirit to be the human foundation of the New Testament, New Covenant form of the church. And so that's who it is who is writing this letter and this follower of Jesus. Well, who is he writing the letter to? We'll see here in verse uh, 1 also he identifies his recipients. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion and then lists these various areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Peter is writing here to people he specifies with with three key words. They are elect, they are exiles, and they are of the dispersion. And each of those is important. tells us, first of all, he's writing to a chosen people. Now, 
Some people hear the word elect and immediately uh, have their guard up. Uh, The whole idea of election, sovereign election, is one that offends them. Well, that's puzzling because the idea, uh, in fact, even the term itself as here, occurs throughout the Scriptures. The question is not, do you believe in election? The question is, what do you believe about election? Because anyone who has read the Scriptures has to acknowledge that the idea of election, of God's choosing, is present. The question is, how does he choose? Why does he choose? Whom does he choose? What, and what difference does that make for our lives in our own faith, as well as our own evangelistic or own mission efforts? Well, uh, as we look at it here, um, to those who are elect or chosen exiles of the dispersion, we need to recognize God's sovereignty in salvation. God is the one who initiates salvation. God is the one who chooses a people for himself. We do not choose ourselves to be God's people. We see that in Deuteronomy, the passage that we read earlier, where the Lord emphasizes that it was not anything in Israel that led him to choose them. It was not because they were numerous. It was not because they were impressive. In fact, he says you were least numerous. You were nothing. Uh, when, when God came to Abraham and chose him out of all the people around and made his covenant with him and promised that through him uh, the nations would be blessed and uh, from him would come, come many, like the stars of the sky and so forth, the promises that he made and the promise of the land. And so the Lord emphasizes that he chose Israel not because of anything in them but because of his mere good pleasure. Now, if there were an equivalent passage to that in the New Testament, it would have to be Romans 9, where the Lord emphasizes in the selection of Jacob over Esau that it was not because of anything in the twins. He says, before they were born, before either one had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, he chose the younger over the older, as he says, for for Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And the emphasis there is, again, not that that Jacob was uh, in any way better than Esau. As you read about their lives in the Scriptures, they both certainly had glaring faults. Simply, according to God's decision, as Paul goes on to explain in that passage, that he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, this whole idea of election... Uh, is, again, one that frightens people, but in reality it should be an encouragement. Because, one, if we recognize in our sinfulness and our fallenness and our deadness spiritually that we would never choose Christ apart from God's grace, it's an encouragement to us in that. It is also an encouragement to us in that uh, the Father having chosen us, that our salvation begins with him, not with us, and therefore it is he who continues it until the day of Christ Jesus not ourselves. And that should be a great encouragement, a great comfort to the Christian. Now, objections do arise. Well, how can this, how can this be true and then God tell us to believe? Well, the command to believe is there. Whether we are capable of doing it or not, it is what we ought to do. And thankfully, in God's grace, he enables us to believe. Well, what about missions? What about evangelism? Well, I would, I, would, I would suggest that election does not undermine evangelism and missions. Rather, it establishes it. You know, we, we are like Paul when he was trembling at the thought of the city of Corinth. 
And the Lord comes to Paul and he says, Paul, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. Now, this was before church was planted. He's not saying there are many Christians there. He's saying, I have many who are going to respond, many in this city who will become Christians under your ministry. And so the doctrine of election should serve to encourage, to to strengthen us in our efforts of evangelism, recognizing that it ultimately does not rest on my own persuasiveness, my own cleverness, my own skill in apologetics, but rather on the sovereign grace of God to, to save someone through me, to save someone in spite of me. And so this is a great encouragement, and that's why Peter assures them of who they are as those who are God's elect, those who have been chosen by God, who are, as we read in Deuteronomy, his treasured possession. What a beautiful, beautiful expression of God's regard for his people. They are his treasured possession. So they are a chosen people. He also says that they are an alien people. In other words, they are exiles. They are living in a land not their own. And he lists these various places where he where these people live that he writes to, uh, many of these are in what today would be Turkey, Asia Minor. Some have suggested that these were areas that Peter himself had worked in, had evangelized in, uh, and maybe that's why he was aware of them or knew them. We don't know that for sure. But Peter does write to people who are exiles scattered in these various lands, uh, but we need to recognize that if there is a word that characterizes the Christian, it is an exile. Now, of course, Peter was Jewish, and he's drawing on his Jewish heritage, his Jewish background here. When we think of exile, and many of you have been with us on Sunday nights, or more recently Sunday morning, in our study of the book of Jeremiah, um, we know of that, that threat of exile that took place, and in fact, the, the reality of it that occurred with the fall of Judah, the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, and the people were taken out into exile in, in, in Babylon. And then we think of, um, of even in the, uh, the New Testament, uh, where there were Christians who had to flee Jerusalem because of persecution and were away from home. But this is an important word for the Christian. We need to recognize that this defines our existence, that we too are exiles that we are, as it were, living out of suitcases here, that, that this is not our permanent and final home, except in its redeemed and restored condition as a new heavens and a new earth. But not now. Not here. Not like this. Not in this fallen, sinful, painful world that we live in. And as exiles, as should be with any traveler, there is a longing to be home. There's a desire to be home. There's an anticipation of being home. But we need to recognize who we are as God's people, chosen by God, and yet at the moment living an exiled existence, living in a place that is not our home. There's something else going on here, though, because Peter is drawing off his Jewish heritage as a chosen people, as an exiled people. But he's writing, at least in part, maybe predominantly, to Gentiles. In fact, as you turn farther down into chapter 1, you see in verse 18, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ. Peter would never have written that of Jews unless they were extremely lapsed Jews, uh, completely having departed from their heritage. And even if that were the case, he wouldn't say that that was what they inherited from their forefathers. He's writing here, at least in part, and perhaps predominantly, to Gentile believers whom he refers to as God's chosen people, whom he refers to as exiles, and then whom he refers to as the diaspora, which referred specifically to the Jews scattered in exile. But Peter takes that term and applies it now to Gentile believers living in these various places, which tells us Peter is not speaking so much in Jewish terms here as he is taking that imagery and applying it to the church today, whether Jew or Gentile. We all are scattered. We all are exiles. And we all are part of the chosen people of God, not limited to Abraham's physical descendants. It wasn't even limited in that way in the Old Testament. Look at the Gentiles who became part of Israel in, in the Old Testament. Ruth, Rahab, others. Uh, but certainly now, Peter can take these, these Jewish categories and, and describe the New Covenant Church with them, Jewish Gentile believers alike. And as you know from Peter's life, that took a big work of God. We can think of the, uh, the struggles Peter had in arriving at this place. Remember initially, when uh, Peter was to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius and other Gentiles, and the Lord has to show him in this vision these unclean animals and tell him to eat them. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I don't do that. I keep kosher diet. The Lord says, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And then he gets that call to go and preach to the Gentiles. And then we read in Galatians how Peter, influenced by others, begins to draw back from the Gentiles. And Paul has to rebuke him. He's being inconsistent. He's reverting to old patterns. But here, and in later life, Peter is able to very openly and up front take these Jewish categories and embrace Gentile believers within them as the chosen people of God, living in exiled existence, part of God's people, Jew or Gentile, believing in Christ, scattered over these areas, but today scattered all over the world. We are a, a dispersed people as we live out our exile, uh, whether here in the United States or other countries around the world. And so it was these people to whom he writes, but he goes on in verse 2 to add more. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God. What was according to the foreknowledge of God? Well, uh, all of it. All of it, certainly, that they were exiled, that they were chosen, uh, and God's elect people, that they were exiled, and that they were scattered all of it, but especially that they are elect, that they have been chosen by God, chosen how? How have they become God's people? Well, he elaborates on that. And by the way, verse 2 is a magnificent verse. It's easy to overlook it because it's part of a greeting of a letter. and We, we often don't look for life-changing insights uh, in the greetings of a letter. But this is a significant, significant verse in Scripture, one you should be familiar with for two reasons. One, it names here in one verse, easy to remember, every member of the Trinity, right? The Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. 
Not only does it say, so you, know, you know, if you want to tangle with the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your door, you can, I don't know what they will do with it. I'm sure they have an answer, but you can at least throw this verse at them. But not only does it name each member of the Trinity, but it, it in a very succinct way describes what each member of the Trinity does in bringing about your salvation and mine. A lot more could be said, but Peter very concisely summarizes the work of the Trinity in your salvation. And we often you know, thank Jesus for dying for us, but our salvation is a Trinitarian operation. All three members of the Trinity are involved in bringing it about, and this verse explains how. And so as Peter describes God's people as elect, exiles in the world, scattered throughout the world, how? Well, it's according, first of all, he says, to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Our election is according to God's foreknowledge. Now, that's a, a word that's easy to misunderstand. By the way, the Greek word is prognosis, basically almost, almost exactly the word prognosis, uh, which we think of in medical terms as, as trying to look ahead and see what the outcome of a, of a disease or an ailment will be, what the recovery or lack thereof might be. Foreknowledge. However, we tend to think passively. Foreknowledge is simply being aware of what's going to happen in the future. The Bible doesn't use the term that way. The Bible uses the term foreknowledge in an active way, to know ahead of time. As an example of that, the word occurs again later in this chapter in verse 20. Speaking of Jesus, where Peter, as we'd read earlier in verse 18, speaks of our being redeemed not with perishable things, he says, but in verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown, there's the word again, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. If you say foreknowledge there is simply being aware of him, well, of course the Father was aware of God the Son. That's not what it's saying. It's saying he was foreknown in the sense that the Father had chosen him or set him apart before the foundation of the world, but manifests now to be our Savior. In fact, so strong is that, uh, that meaning there that the NIV translates the word here, he was chosen. Now, I like the word foreknown because that's what the word is, and it shows the parallel between our being known, foreknown by God the Father and Christ himself as our Savior being foreknown by, uh, by God the Father. But it does. It has the idea of being chosen, being set apart, not just being aware of in advance. And you find that, that meaning throughout Scripture. We find it in Romans 8, the passage that we read earlier, where it speaks of uh, this, this chain of events that culminates in our salvation and our glorification, Verse 29, Romans 8, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So he set his knowledge on them ahead of time, knew them uh, even before they existed, in that sense of setting his affection, setting his knowledge, choosing them, and determining, predestining them to be what? To be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And so we need to understand the word here in this active sense, not as though God is a passive bystander viewing history in the future, but he is the sovereign Lord of history. He is the one who has determined that this is how it will be. In the sanctification of the Spirit, there's the, the work of the Holy Spirit, 
Sanctification of the Spirit. Well, that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does, isn't it? And the Scripture describes His work as uh, making us aware of the truth of God. Of um, Actually, even before, well, along with that, and maybe through that, making us alive spiritually, regenerating us so that we can hear the gospel in the sense in which we hear it and respond to it in repentance and faith. And then, of course, carrying out that purpose of God's predestining us to be conformed to the image of Christ and actually doing that, working in us to sanctify us. Now, you know, the moment you believe in Christ, you are justified You are right with God. You are reconciled because God has imputed or credited your sins to Christ on the cross. He atones for them there. And having believed in him, he imputes or credits to you the righteousness of Jesus. And from that moment, and it is a moment when you believe, you are justified. You are right with God. Uh, There is no condemnation for you now in Christ Jesus. However, God begins to actually make us more and more into the image of Christ in how we live from hour to hour, day to day. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, taking the truth of Scripture, helping us understand it, showing how it applies in our lives, convicting us uh, when we don't obey it, and enabling us, giving us grace and strength and faith to obey it. And so we see the work of the Father in his foreknowledge in choosing a people The work of the Holy Spirit here, working in God's people to draw them to Christ, to help them to grow in Christ. And then the third member of the Trinity here, although Peter doesn't take it in the order we typically think of, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, He's kind of writing on the fly here, penning this letter. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Two things here. For obedience to Christ. Why? Well, sanctification by the Spirit in obedience to Christ, because Christ is our King. He is our Lord. Uh, he is the one who, uh, whom we follow. He is our teacher. He is our master. He is our rabbi. He is our King, as well as being our Savior. Now, He's not just our King. Thank God He also is our Savior. But uh, we obey Him. He is our Lord. Uh, he, we show our love for Him by obeying what he commands. And that's brought out here. But we think, uh-oh, <laughs> I haven't always obeyed Jesus the way I should. And Peter says, for sprinkling with his blood. That's a rich, rich image that we find in Scripture that speaks to a couple of things. First of all, it speaks to cleansing. Because we don't obey him the way we should. But we have his blood that sprinkles us and cleanses us. Hebrews 10 Uh, refers to this Uh, when he says, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 22, says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You know, when our consciences convict us, uh, when Satan accuses us, we go back and remember that we were sprinkled with the blood of Christ, as if we were standing under the cross, and Christ's blood was sprinkling down on us, washing away our sins. It's death for those sins. So it has the image here of, of cleansing, but it also has the image here of a covenant. Think back to Exodus chapter 24. God has given the law at Sinai, and Moses has met with the Lord. And he comes down and he reads the law to the people. And this is Exodus 24, first part of the chapter. And the people respond and they say, All that the Lord has said we will do. Obedience. And then Moses sacrifices the animals, and he takes the blood, and he sprinkles it 
on the people. Why? Well, it signifies the covenant. It indicates that they are now in a covenant relationship with the Lord. He has given them his his law. They have pledged obedience to that law. And the covenant is ratified with the shed blood of an animal. That even in ratifying that commitment they make, the blood of God's mercy, the blood of a substitute, is sprinkled on the people. Cleanse them. Because you know, as I do, that they very quickly broke that promise of obedience. Quickly and then consistently disobeyed that covenant they made. But that's us. We are under the blood of Christ. We are in a covenant relationship with God. The the water, the sprinkled water of baptism signifies that. But in that very act of covenant, in that very sign of the covenant, we also have the sign of God's mercy, of cleansing and forgiveness. And then Peter simply greets them, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, The grace of God, uh, the cleansing, salvation, work of God in them, and the peace that flows from that, the wholeness of life, uh, calmness of spirit, peace with God and therefore peace with others, is what Peter uh, pronounces upon them by way of greeting and by way of blessing, and not just in little measure, but may it be multiplied, may it overflow, grace upon grace, peace upon peace, uh, be upon you as he greets them, as he greets these dear people of the Lord, as he greets us here by the uh, written word of God preserved for us today. Because what Peter says of them is true of us. We are the elect, chosen people of God. We live here as exiles, and we're scattered, scattered over North Atlanta, scattered over this entire globe. We need to recognize that we are people living, people of God living out of a suitcase. Uh, This bit of early writing, the epistle to Diognetus, uh, early, right after the era of the apostles, uh, Christian writing, writing that was apologetic, defense of Christians and who they were and how they lived, captures this pilgrim spirit well. In it, uh, these words are found. Christians are not marked out from the rest of mankind by their country or their speech or their customs. They dwell in cities both Greek and barbarian, each as his lot is cast, following the customs of the region, in clothing and in food and in the outward things of life generally. Yet they manifest the wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their own state. They inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents thereof. They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land. Every native land is a foreign land. They pass their days on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. We begin this year, let us remember our identity as God's chosen people, his exiled people, his dispersed people, and yet people known by the Father from all eternity, redeemed by the sprinkled blood of the Lamb, and empowered by the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Because the day is coming. The day is coming. But we'll unpack our suitcases and put them away. Never to take them out again. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words and how they remind us of who we are. And Father, we pray that we would remember that uh, always, and especially as we begin this new year, 
to remember who we are as your people. Father, we pray for your grace to live as citizens of heaven here in this world. Father, give us your grace. Give us the sanctification of the Spirit. Uh, Father, help us to remember that we are sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Help us, by your grace, to live in obedience to him. And Father, we recognize that there is nothing in us that makes us better than others around us, that we should, in your grace, be your people. Father, we give thanks to you for that. And we pray, Father, that through us, more would be brought into the fold of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.